Fact and Fiction, an introduction. If you haven't already noticed, all my books are about a lonely person looking for some way to connect with other people. In a way, that is the opposite of the American dream, which is to get so rich you can rise above the rabble, all those people on the freeway, or worse, the bus. No, the dream is a big house off alone somewhere, a penthouse like Howard Hughes, or a mountaintop castle like William Randolph Hearst, some lovely isolated nest where you can invite only the rabble you really like, an environment you can control, free from conflict and pain, where you get to rule. Chuck Polinick is the author of Fight Club, Survivor, Lullaby, and Diary. His new novel is Haunted. Welcome to the program, Chuck. Thank you very much, Rick. Chuck, your new novel is comprised of short stories, which you've been reading aloud as you tour. I'd like you to describe to us the reactions that you're getting from your reading of your short story, Guts. Uh, Auntie's Bookstore in Spokane has a bloodstain on the carpet from one of 65, 67 people around the world now who have fainted as I read that story. And in Auntie's case, and in the case of the Boulder Bookstore and a couple others, people actually hit their head on bookshelves as they fainted and bled quite a bit. But paramedics have been called. People have aspirated their vomit. That happened at Columbia in New York. People have fainted in Italian. 67 people, and I am no longer reading Guts. What are you reading now? I'm reading the hot potting story about uh, hot springs. I I can't imagine that that's going to get a less visceral reaction. (laughs) Well, the best thing is that before I read the hot potting story, I distribute hundreds of teriyaki-scented room fresheners throughout the venue, (laughs) and everyone at this point has unwrapped them and touched them, and the whole room is reeking of cooked steak at the plot point where the woman steps outside on the snowy night looking for the man who's missing, and we realize what's happened to this man. Have you done this yet? I've done it to, so far, several thousand people on the West Coast, and it's gone very well. Tell us a little bit about how you research things to find these kind of facts that you can then deploy to a most heinous end. Well, usually, you know, the the germ of the idea comes from somebody, usually a stranger that I meet on an airplane or at a party, and they'll tell me something just extraordinary. One of the stories in Haunted is about people abusing CPR dolls, the breather, um, the recessa Annie dolls. And that is based on a series of different stories people told me about abusing these dolls, including doctors at the Oregon Health Sciences University, our teaching hospital in Portland. And there, there's a hazing ritual where on the 36th hour of being on call, a strung-out resident is paged to an isolated hospital room. And as he enters the room, the room is nightmarishly lit and draped with sheets. And a woman is laying in bed holding a baby, both of them covered in blood. And she's screaming, you killed it. You killed my baby. How dare you? You killed my baby. And she throws this bloody dead baby at the resident. And it's a recessa baby that you practice mouth to mouth on. And the room is draped because it's filled with the entire medical staff 
who have all been subjected to this hideous ritual, and they all want to see the new guy walk into that room. So we have all of these subcultures of people abusing recessa Annie dolls. And so I just start researching a certain liminal culture that people don't acknowledge, and I find some way to turn that into a story. You do that quite a bit. You know, I've never noticed that, but that's really interesting. You do seem to go to different places and find those little microcultures and micro groups and, and clubs and groups of people. Tell us a little bit about how do you find those people and places, and how do you get them to talk to you? So often I find that that if I talk to someone, and it's not so much a matter of talking as it is just listening, just really being fully aware and sort of echoing back what they say so that the conversation is an is a ongoing proof that I am listening and that I am not judging them and that I am completely fascinated by them. And people gradually demonstrate more and more. They start with the very safe things, but they eventually start sharing things that you would never, ever have expected from them. And that's when the payoff really comes. That's when you hear things that, that you would never even see on the Internet, fantastic things. Your new collection, Stranger Than Fiction, talks a bit about the poles of being a writer, fact, fiction, alone, together. Tell us a little bit about how you use those poles to create a tension within yourself as a writer, as an artist, to generate both fiction and nonfiction. It's kind of like bulimia. <laughs> My way of being people is probably really unhealthy in that I will, I'll be incredibly social and I won't write a word for maybe a year. I'll just be with people going to parties and soaking up stories and just sort of recharging all of my ideas and in a way that's like overeating. I will eat everything in the bakery, and then I will sit down and I will vomit it up alone at home in the toilet, which is my word processor. And uh, then I will go back out and I will overeat everything in the bakery, and I just binge and purge and binge and purge, and that's my way of being with people. Your new novel, Haunted, is a collection of short stories as well. A gentleman back in the 1930s, name of A.E. Van Vocht, science fiction writer. He was an enterprising guy. He would write stories for the pulps, but he wanted to make more money. Mm -hmm. So what he would do, he'd get a bunch of stories together and he'd just string them together. And then he managed to sell them as a novel. He called this a fix-up novel hmm. because he'd put them together and he'd fix them up. And this is a very uh, hallowed tradition in science fiction. And I'm wondering, were you aware of this tradition when you created Haunted, which is an absolute fix-up novel, is it not? I mean, It's funny because I loved Martian Chronicles, and I could see Martian Chronicles being thought of as a, a fix-up novel. Exactly, yes. But really, when I sat down to do Haunted, I wanted to do a sort of horror version of, uh, of Chorus Line, where you have a sort of vaudeville texture of stories. You have stand-up comedy, you have drama, you have through-line stories, you have just sort of sketch humor. You have short things and long things. Just a whole constant variety of different textures of story. All of them, again, told trapped in a stage, just like Chorus Line. But I wanted to do that with horror. One of the things that's interesting, let's talk a bit, little bit about the structure of Haunted, because it has a very, a very complex and seem 
kind of rigid structure, the way you put it together. Did you put this together deliberately? Tell us about the different parts of Haunted and how you came up with them and how they fit together and how they create the whole texture of the novel. First, first I had a lot of short stories that I was really happy with. And I was hearing constantly from my publisher that people did not buy short stories. And short story collections were just not marketable. So, please. Even for you? Yeah, even for me. Boy. And then I had read in Stephen King's story collections that even King griped that story collections didn't sell. And I also had a novella about people, basically, you know, cultural critics, music, book, movie critics, who were sick of the culture, and they wanted to sort of step out of it. Like people were stepping out of the, the plague culture in Mask of the Red Death. They were going to sequester themselves away somewhere and create a new culture that they would then launch on the world, what they would see as a sort of an ideal culture. But once they got inside of this place and they locked the door behind them, they would find that they really couldn't produce anything even as good as the culture that they were condemning so strongly on the outside. So they would sort of start to destroy themselves. And even that, that novella, seemed sort of shallow, I mean, it really didn't have any depth to it. You had these claustrophobic people trapped in this place, sort of picking themselves apart. And so I thought, why not splice those chapters between the short stories? And and the, the third part was to, in a way, introduce each character on stage in a physical way. And so I did that by creating a, a sort of a prose poem or a free verse poem to introduce each short story, just as a moment for the camera to settle on the speaker and for us to see what they look like physically before they started telling their backstory. So first was the stories, then the novella, and then the poems were the the last part I put together. This is very interesting, and it all fits in with your interest in minimalism. It strikes me that as a minimalist, novels must seem kind of maximal for a minimalist. So the short story medium seems a very ideal way for you to exercise your art form. Could you tell us a little bit about how this work was informed by minimalism? Well, that's a real problem with reading minimalists is that there really are very few, if any, minimalist novelists. Joy Williams would be a minimalist novelist, but Raymond Carver, short stories, uh, Amy Hempel, Mark Richard, short stories. And so with Haunted, I got to write the most strict, minimalist stories I have ever gotten to write. But even my other books, like Fight Club, started as a series of short stories, each one illustrating a plot point. And I could tell you which chapters in Fight Club were were originally stories and which chapters were sort of the bridges that were written to hold those stories together. So even Fight Club is what you would call a fix-up novel. Interesting, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about shock value. God bless shock value. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about how you use shock value and the different ways you use different types of shock value. You know, and I I don't even think of it as shock value. I just do not want to waste my time, and I, I do not want to waste the reader's time by discussing something that is not really, really confronting and really challenging. You know, if you're going to go into one of my stories, you're going to come out the other end a slightly different person and not entirely uh, comfortable in the world anymore. And so 
I just find it impossible to sit down and write a story that does not go some extreme place because that's the entire purpose of a story for me. The purpose is never to shock someone. In a way, it's to shock myself. And if, as I'm writing it, I think, my mother must never see this. And if I also think there is no way I could ever read this in public, then that means I'm doing my job. Because otherwise, um, I might as well be doing something entirely different with my life. Your new novel has been described as being a satire of reality TV. But that wasn't my take on it. I wanted to ask you, in 1897, Oscar Metenier bought a theater in Paris with which to produce his plays. He called it the Théâtre de Grand Guignol. I've heard of this. The big theater of puppets to depict a milieu that had never before been seen on stage. Vagrants, street kids, prostitutes, loafers, and con artists. Now, this sounds a lot like your novels, doesn't it? And especially a lot like your novel, Haunted. And I think also in the Anne Rice uh, interview with the vampire, her theater of the vampires was patterned after that real theater in Paris. Oh, absolutely. One of the, it was closed in 1962, and the last director of this of this thing it lasted for quite some time. So it's shocking. But the final director said, "Well, we could never compete with Buchenwald." Mm. So I want to know what I have want to ask you is. How do you compete with Jim Jones? How do you compete with Columbine? You transcend gore. You transcend a a physical horror based on gore by going to a horror based on complete loss of face and social status, a horror based on humiliation and complete, you know, confrontation with shame and being fully sort of stripped of all of your your defenses and all of your dignity. And in so many of my stories, you know, a very mild-mannered person finds themselves sort of destroyed by their darkest secret. And uh, that, I think, is what people are reacting to. Because at this point, we have seen the the trade towers fall down. We've seen terrific, horrible things in in our lifetime that I don't think that people really respond to that very much. But to humiliation, uh, they still respond very strong to that. Oh, also... My stories tend to be sort of sexual as well as humiliating, as well as, in the case of Haunted, they all involve food. Haunted was going to be my food book, but nobody ever really eats the food. They do horrible things with the food or they have sex with the food, but they never really eat the food. I want to talk to you about the nature of horror in a secular society, which is really what you're getting at. Because if you don't believe in an afterlife, then hell isn't going to scare you, is it? Actually, I kind of believe in a half in an afterlife, but I'm not too frightened of hell. What I'm getting at is that, and this is, I think, what you're getting at too, is that the events that have consequ- immediate consequences in this world are very frightening to us personally. If somebody's going to kill us, then we don't really have to worry about what happens afterwards. We don't know. But if somebody's going to, as you say, humiliate us, We're going to have to live with that for a long, long time. And one of the big commitments I made when I started writing was that I would never resolve a story by killing the main characters because the reader was going to have to close that book and continue living. So no matter what happened or no matter how bad things got, 
the character was going to have to continue living as well. And so, you know, in a way that's even more upsetting and confronting, the idea that you have to live into a world where you have lost all dignity and all respect from everyone around you. That, to me, is, as you say, true horror. It really is, because we live in such a looking good culture. And now, when I used to tour, people would linger, and they would come up at the very end of book events. And they would stay around for hours to catch me alone and say, uh, is there a fight club in this area? I really would love to go to a fight club. And now they come up at midnight or 1 o'clock in the morning after hours and hours of book signing. And they say, I've got a story I've never told another human being. But after you've read your work, I think I can tell you, may I tell you this story? And they tell me stories. uh, A a young woman in Seattle told me about having her first orgasm with her little sister's Cookie Monster electric toothbrush. (laughs) And every morning she locked herself in the bathroom. And once a week her mother would say things like, they just don't make batteries like they used to. And uh, she never told anyone. Even, you know, her little sister would say things like, Mommy, why does Cookie Monster smell like pussy? <laughs> and no one ever figured out. And finally, she figured out she could have an orgasm some other way. But it's stories like this that people are telling me on a nightly basis now. And stories that make the gut story look pretty pale. Well, this is interesting. Then your fiction has given you access to people in such a way that you get material for more fiction. You're you're like a self, uh, a perpetual fiction motion machine. In a way, it, it gives people permission to tell these stories, and it gives them a safe listening. There was one man a couple nights ago in Seattle uh, who had just served a tour on a nuclear submarine where someone had committed suicide. And he said no one on the sub had any training in CPR, so... They ended up doing mouth-to-mouth on this dead body for 18 hours. 18 hours of mouth-to-mouth on a dead body before they finally gave up and put this man in with the ice cream and stored him there until the end of the tour. But I couldn't make up these stories. In fact, if I wrote these stories as fiction, I would have to water them down to get other people to believe them. So that's the huge irony of hearing true stories is that they're so much more extreme than people would ever believe as fiction that sometimes you can't use them. But you can use them to create the kernels of other stories, can't you? Exactly. So I look for a pattern. You know, three failed masturbation experiments. That is the pattern of guts. uh, Three ways in which people have abused uh, mouth-to-mouth resuscitation dolls. That is the pattern of exodus. Three ways in which people have fallen accidentally into geysers at national parks and taken days to die of their burns. That is the pattern of uh, hot potting. So I find some way to sort of quilt together these true life anecdotes and make them believable, despite the fact that they're true stories. You seem to really like the effects of the supernatural, the surface of it, but you're not really comfortable with it yourself, are you, as a writer? No, you know, I... uh, I might have one supernatural element in each of my books, whether it's the the culling song in Lullaby, or whether it is uh, the omniscient character in Survivor, the woman who keeps the plot moving because she always knows what's going to happen in the future. 
And so she moves into the future with absolutely no anxiety because she knows everything that's about to happen. Um, but I just don't want to rely on it too much. I don't want to sort of lapse into an alternate reality, a sort of Tolkien world. So we won't be seeing any demons or other dimensions in your stories? Or... No, I really l like the fact that the stories are really anchored in the modern world, in the sort of here and now real world, so that you can conceive of these stories happening around you, you know, in your regular life. One of the things you say in Haunted is to the effect that all the supernatural, all the miracles, they're just special effects. They are just ways of sort of dealing with with things like incredible shame and humiliation, loss of face, or fear of pain, things like that, or sex. You know, in a way, monsters are just dressed up human problems or issues. So I think sometimes it's, it's nice to deal with them without making them into a Frankenstein. You do use one monster in your new novel. Where did you get all your information on Bigfoot? From a lot of different Bigfoot people. Portland has a Bigfoot society and a Bigfoot museum. And the Northwest has, uh, you know, per capita, more Bigfoot experts than any other part of the world. You have a real ripped-from-the-headlines feel for some of this stuff. It's funny because I tend to write about things before they happen. Or I tend to write about <laughs> things that haven't been acknowledged. And they always happen. But people just aren't talking about them. So... Once it gets recognized in one small way, say in a short story, then suddenly people start recognizing it in the world, where it's always existed in the world, we just haven't seen it. But once you say, hey, the emperor has his butt hanging out, he's naked, then suddenly everyone recognizes that the emperor is naked. And so I'm not so much predicting things as I'm acknowledging things that we won't acknowledge. And beyond that, everyone can start to, to acknowledge these things. We're talking with Chuck Polinick. His new novel is Haunted. Chuck, I want to talk a little bit about how anymore it's not possible to read a Chuck Polinick novel without noticing a couple of verbal tics. As in anymore. As in choruses. Yes. Tell us about how... He, you develop these linguistically as a writer and how you deploy them and why you deploy them? Well, choruses. I use choruses because human beings use choruses. We sort of develop these little macro programs, these way of uh, marking important moments in our lives. Uh, trying to think of an anecdote I can tell on the radio. but uh, Go ahead and tell it and... If we can't use it on the radio, we'll just edit it out. Okay. My friend Larry Mode, and Larry might hear this on the radio, we used to go to a strip bar called the Carriage Room just after college, and there would be this really old man wearing a Panama hat, and he would take dollar bills, and he would lick the long edge of each bill and roll it up tight as a pencil, and he would stick these things together until they were about as long as a walking stick, long stick of these dollar bills, and he would make the girls get down on all fours right in front of him, and he would say in this really cancerous voice, he would say, Arch your back, baby, arch your back. And as their butt opened, this man would whip this cane and he would put just one dollar bill in the ass of this woman. And we loved this guy. He just always cracked us up. And even now, oh my gosh, 20 years later, Larry will call me and he just has to say in the phone, I'll pick it up and say hello. And he'll say, arch your back, baby. 
and I'll just howl with laughter. We do this. We sort of create these these little landmark phrases that mark shared experience with each other. Uh, other friends of mine in college, if you had food around your mouth after you would eat, had eaten, other people would touch that spot on their own face and they would say, you have, an, you have a gazelle out of the park. And you would realize, okay, that was our shorthand, inclusive language for, for something in the world that only we understood. And it was something that united us as a, as a community of, of peers. So human beings do this constantly, create this, this shorthand of macros that refer back to shared experience. And so I just do that in the novels. And it's a way of acknowledging previous plot points without completely reiterating them. You turn them into a chorus or a phrase, and then you just refer back to all of the emotion of that previous moment with that really short phrase. And human beings do it, so I do it in my writing. You do this both within the novel and across novels as well, don't you? There are some really small things that I tend to try to carry from novel to novel. Missoula, Montana is in every novel. Uh, the color cornflower blue seems to turn up in every novel. And sometimes I do it so subconsciously that folks bring it to my attention, and I'm a little shocked that that I'm aware of how often I do it. As a writer now, you've achieved a level of fame that most writers haven't. So you have you end up approaching your writing a bit differently, don't you? Yeah, I always approach it from, I must write something that I would be deeply ashamed for my family to ever see. I must write something that I'd be very, very uncomfortable reading in public. And I must write something that could never get made into a movie. That is, a, that's a real goal of mine. Because if I'm going to write stories that could easily be made into movies, I need to be working in, in that business. But what books can do are, are go to places and tell stories that will never be television or movie or music stories. So I really think that's the strength of books. And, and that's why I choose to write books. So that's why, in a way, I have to write these extreme stories to take advantage of the one advantage the books have in the culture. And that's because, as you refer to in Stranger Than Fiction, reading is a lonely business, isn't it? It's not something you can do with anybody else. It's impossible to read with another person. Right. You go into that book all by yourself, and you go in as a consenting adult reading that book. And... That gives the writer this ongoing permission to take you to places that, that a movie in an airplane could never take you to and to show you things that are very, very challenging. So that's my job. I want to ratchet back and talk a little bit about the horror business. You told me a couple years ago that you wanted to be a horror writer and done, mission accomplished. Thank you. <laughs> I'm wondering if you've noticed... Something I've noticed about horror is it really tends to flourish in when, in America at least, when we have an, a, a Republican administration. Richard Nixon brought us The Exorcist, Jaws, The Other. Ronald Reagan and Bush One brought us a whole huge 80s horror burst with Clive Barker and mm -hmm. Stephen King and Peter Straub and Dennis Etchison. And now George W. Bush is bringing us you. I'm wondering. <laughs> 
God. Oh, I'm, another thing to blame on poor George <laughs> W. Bush. I'm wondering if if you think that there's anything to that and how you are reacting to to the culture. Well, I think horror is a way of metaphorically dealing with things that we feel helpless around and exploring and exhausting our feelings about this. Very recently, I heard that, that the Frankenstein movies that were done by uh, James Whale were so popular because it was so close to the First World War. And the First World War was the only war that happened in modern history when people who were severely mutilated and disfigured could be could survive to walk the streets. So in the 1920s and into the 30s, people were confronted by a level of disfigurement and mutilation in their peers that they had never, ever seen before in history. Until that moment, if someone had been scarred that badly, they died. And suddenly people needed a way to deal with these walking monsters in their cities. These young men who came back from the First World War with their faces gone or their limbs gone. And that the strong reaction to the Frankenstein movies was really people's reaction to these walking monsters among them. And so in a way, every wave of horror, I think, is a metaphoric reaction to something that's happening in the culture. And, uh, and I'm not really sure what I would be a reaction to. I'm not sure if you can actually do it and be aware of what you're, you know, you're really dealing with at the same time. I'm wondering if you would want to talk to us a little bit, take a, a few minutes, and talk to us about works of horror that you think that we should be reading this summer. Well, you know, one of my favorites is Shirley Jackson's The Lottery. And I believe it, it came out in the mid-50s, mid to late 50s, at a time when we were sending people to die in the Korean War after having just sent a lot of people to die in the Second World War. And I would argue that it was probably a dealing with that terror of the draft, but dealing with the terror of the draft in yet another war where we were going to be choosing certain people among us to go off and die so the rest of us could continue driving two hours to work every day. And when Shirley Jackson's The Lottery was originally published in The New Yorker, Hundreds of people were so offended and outraged that they canceled their subscriptions to The New Yorker for the lottery. And so I really thought, what would it take to write a story that would be the modern equivalent of the lottery? And that's really why I wrote Guts. What would it take to write a story that would be so offensive that would, people would be so upset about that they would cancel their subscriptions? And when it came out in The Guardian in Great Britain, a huge newspaper, hundreds of people canceled their subscriptions to The Guardian. So Shirley Jackson's books, I think, are just extraordinary. And I tend to always fall back on her, uh, Stephen King. I'm not a real horror-reading person. Uh, Horror movies, yeah, oh yeah. Well, tell us about your favorite horror movies. Oh my gosh. Uh, the original black and white, The Haunting, that fantastic, fantastic Whitley Strieber, The Hunger, which is almost a nonverbal movie. It's almost like watching a great silent movie. The Hunger is all visual images and music. So excellent. Boy, the real classics, 
And among the classics, I would also say Session 9. Boy, for a shoestring budget and one location, that is a terrific movie, Session 9. And then all of the 70s stuff I grew up on. Uh, Plus really oddball ones like Let's Scare Jessica to Death, that strange vampire hippie movie. Nobody really sees that movie, but it's a really, really spooky movie. I have to say that that was the movie that marked my wife to never like horror. After that movie, seeing that movie, she would never, ever go see a horror movie again Did as, it a, just as a kid. frighten her too much? It's just she's, She saw it, I think, when she was 12, and she was just so terrorized by it that she would never go to a horror movie again. I think that's because, you know, I think I saw it at the same age, and there was something about it that was just too real. And it almost, it seemed very much like a, a Night of the Living Dead in that it was sort of grainy and very naturalistic. And it was this first sort of naturalistic horror movie. In your new novel, you've got a a bunch of people who are spending the entire time planning the movie adaptation of their experience. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about how you came up with that idea and what you do with it and why you seem to have so much fun with it. Well, right now we're living in such a culture of, of people struggling for authority. We've recognized that, in a way, there really is no truth. There's just spin. And one website says one thing, and another media outlet says another thing, and another national figure says another thing. And they're all supposedly talking about the same thing. So in a way, right now, we're living in a culture that is nothing but a huge struggle for who is going to be the truth, who is going to be the authority. And I think that's the one most distinctive thing of our time is who is going to be that that camera that is farthest behind all the other cameras and can show you the entire picture without showing you itself. So that last camera behind the camera behind the camera gets to be the truth. And right now, all the different perspectives, all the different stories are still battling. And we have no sort of overarching truth right now. Do you think we once had an omniscient narrator for our culture, maybe back in the 60s? Oh. Walter Cronkite? The Pope. We had Walter Cronkite. We had the Pope. We had the President. We had Walter Winchell. You know, at one point we, we had, you know, we always had a sort of varied, you know, texture of authorities, but not nearly as many as we have now, especially the Internet, has really leveled that playing field and allowed everyone who wants to be a voice to be a voice. And so suddenly we have this huge sort of fracturing and splintering of authority among billions of people. And do you think that people are looking to be the authority or be subjected to the authority? I think they want to be the authority. People want to be the authority, but I think they also really want a good, compelling entertaining, dazzling authority. And that's what I'm a little more concerned about, is when people start to sort of, you know, delegate their authority to someone else. A very charismatic authority can come up at this point and possibly just sort of gather up tons and tons of people who are would be very happy to have a, a very good-looking Austrian governor or someone who is very charismatic and very, very attractive and very well-spoken uh, to be the authority that they just can't take the time to be. So that's just another concern, maybe another book. You brought up our Austrian governor. 
I have to say that California did actually undergo, in, in a sense, a very famous horror story, The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. It's an old Twilight Zone episode. The premise of it is that there's a small neighborhood, and the lights start going on and off. Things start turning, going lawnmowers start going by themselves. Everybody starts to become afraid of the aliens, and eventually they just all kill one another, mm-hmm. and then the aliens can just move on in. Right. And we had our own little lights going on and off, and the aliens did move in. <laughs> yep, the uh, panic the people and then give them a savior, get everybody all upset and then give them a savior. Um, it's not a really original pattern, but we fall for it every single time, and we probably always will. I wanted to talk to you, too, about the movie adaptations of your work. You say that you're striving to create things that cannot be made into movies, and I'm pretty sure we're not going to see a movie of Guts. Knock on wood. (laughs) But uh, almost everything else that uh, I've written is becoming a movie. Uh, The uh, Choke from my fourth book, a comedy about sex addicts, uh, it's being cast right now, and they hope to start shooting in September. The screenplay is even more offensive than the book. The screenplay just made me laugh out loud. Who, but, who uh, Did you write it? No, a man named Clark Gregg wrote it. And he'll be appearing this summer in a television comedy. And his breakout movie was What Lies Beneath with Michelle Pfeiffer and Harrison Ford. And since then, he's written several other movies. And I think Clark wants to direct Choke when it starts shooting. Diary, my last novel, is uh, optioned and in production in Iceland. And those same folks are so happy with it that they are looking at optioning Lullaby, which is the only one of my novels that's not optioned at this point. Survivor, which was my second novel, is optioned and being developed by the writer-director team that just made Constantine with uh, Keanu Reeves. And Invisible Monsters is still under option and being developed by a man named Jesse Perinell. So everything except for Lullaby, is being worked on. And Haunted, there is uh, just a little bit of talk right now about the executive producer for Six Feet Under working with David Fincher to possibly produce Haunted as an HBO miniseries. Well, that would be pretty spectacular, I can imagine. And that might be a venue where you could get away with some of the stuff that happens in that book. Aye, boy. I don't see any actor stepping forward to be in a movie version of Guts. You'd, I bet you'll be surprised. Well, you know, in a way, I think young filmmakers who are really looking to make their mark are looking for unfilmable things, things that are very, very confronting and that will, you know, have a, a big, you know, dramatic effect in the culture. So in a way, maybe my work appeals on that basis. I want to talk a little bit about what you've called transgressive fiction. In a way, you you write transgressive fiction, but you also appreciate the sugar-coated pills that writers like Ira Levin Mm -hmm. slipped to us. Tell us a little bit about the contrast and the process that you call narcotization. Oh, yeah. You know, I forgot about Ira Levin. That that was a real oversight because I love his books. He is such a smart guy. And, uh, And again, he's a smart guy that moved up from writing for television, for writing for those sort of golden age of television, fantastic short dramas. 
Narcotization, we study that in college. People who are shown um, slightly damaged gums and teeth, brushed a little bit more and flossed a little bit more, and people who are shown moderately damaged gums and teeth, brushed and flossed a little bit more than the first group. But people who are shown severely damaged teeth and gums, really horrible, rotted-out mouths, they quit brushing and they quit flossing, and they just gave up. And they called it narcotization, and they created the theory that, that if we're shown something too horrific, too overwhelming, then we give up all hope. And we don't see that we have any cause in the matter. And we just sort of roll over and allow it to happen. And we live a resigned life. And so, you know, people like Ira Levin could take a social issue and put it inside of a very entertaining story and get us to deal with a social issue like the Steffert wives, you know, and, and in through this metaphor, deal with things like the backlash and the culture's resistance to the, to the feminist movement, to women's liberation. You know, acknowledge the things that the culture is not ready to acknowledge and in a way deal with them 20 years before they're even recognized by someone like Susan Faludi in her book, Backlash. So that is the, the sweet, incredible little pill that Ira Levin could do. Well, in this uh, gradation, then, you're the super-rotting teeth that just make people want to give up hope, aren't you? Well, you know, I am for the short stories, but for the bridge stories, where people are sort of constantly arguing for who is going to be the authority, who is going to have the final word, who is going to be the truth, I think that is something that's still not recognized in Haunted by the culture. And maybe someday in the future they'll go, oh, that was that what that book was really about. It's about then the the what we were talking about earlier, the final omniscient narrator. Exactly. For our culture. Right. And that's what you hope to be then. No, no. I just wanted to sort of point out the fact that we're struggling for that right now and that uh that it is a real defining issue of our time. We've been speaking with Chuck Polinick. His new novel is Haunted. Thanks for talking, Jack. Thank you, Rick.